Last time we left Israel down the mountain, dancing around a golden calf that Aaron built for them. Meanwhile, Moses was up in the mountain, God informing him what was going on, and him wondering, now what? We're going to review those two sections and then move on to the people's reactions, what happens to Aaron, Moses pleading before God, and God's judgment on Israel. But the bottom line on all this is, we may be God's children, but he still disciplines us when we act in a way that denigrates his glory and brings disrepute on his name. Welcome to Studies in Exodus. This series of podcasts is produced by Sephora Audio Productions. These sessions were presented at Foothill Bible Church in Lincoln, California. Your speaker is Pastor Jeff Cragen. Join us now as the class is about to start. Aaron felt their agitation as a storm that was about to break. He could scarcely believe. <laughs> he could scarcely breathe. All the laws were gone. Bloody passion soon would destroy his people right where they sat at the foot of the mountain. When therefore the children of Israel came to him at the end of the fifth week and begged for gods that they could see, humbler gods, gods who would comfort them by a gentler, visible presence, Aaron agreed. This is the way Aaron consoled the heart of Israel. He asked for all their gold and jewelry. They obeyed immediately, heaping the gold before him. He melted it down and molded it and engraved it into the shape of a bright golden cap. Then he lifted the figure up in the sight of all the people. Here it is, they said, truly relieved. Here is the God that brought us out of Egypt. Aaron himself was moved by the depth of the gratitude and by the sudden healing of this whole congregation. In that same spirit, then, he built an altar before the shining cap and proclaimed, Let tomorrow be a feast day to the Lord. And their contentment turned to joy. In the morning they, they worked early and offered burnt sacrifices on the altar before the calf. Then they sat down to eat a rich feast. They drank wine. Then they rose up to play. And on that day, in the sixth week of their loneliness, the children of Israel were lonely no longer. They were laughing again. They sang songs with lusty jubilation. And they danced in wild abandon, clapping, whirling in circles, crying out, streaming you know, salty sweat down their foreheads. They had forgotten the mountain. Till suddenly thunder tore heaven in two, and the air itself exploded. And there stood Moses on a crag above them. So, let me read the passage we're looking at, which is 15 to 28. Now Moisha faced about to come down the mountain, the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. Tablets written on both their sides, on this one and on that one they were written. And the tablets were God's making, and the writing was God's writing, engraved upon the tablets. And now, when Yeshua heard the sound of the people as it shouted, he said to Moisha, The sound of war is in the camp. But he said, Not the sound of the song of prevailing, not the sound of the song of failing. Sound of a choral song is what I hear. And it was. When he neared the camp and he saw the cap and the dancing, Moisha's anger flared up and he threw the tablets out from his hands and smashed them beneath the mountain. And he took the cap that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it up until it was thin powder and strewed it on the surface of the water and then made the children of Israel drink it. Then Moisha said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought upon it such a great sin? Aaron said, Well, let not my Lord's anger flare up. You yourself know this people and how set on evil it is. And they said to me, Make us a God who will go before us. For this Moisha, this man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we did not know what had become of him. And so I said to them, Well, who has gold? And they broke it off and gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Now when Moisha saw the people that it had gotten loose for Aaron and let it loose from whispering among their foes, Moisha took a stand at the gate of the camp and said, Whoever is for Yahweh to me, and they gathered to him all the sons of Levi. And he said to them, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Put every man his sword on his thigh, proceed and go back and forth from the gate to, to the gate of the camp, and kill every man his brother, every man his neighbor, every man his relative. And the son of Levi did according to Moshe's words, and there fell on the people that day some 3,000 men. They sure know how to get in trouble, don't they? Justice is swift. Yeah, that too. 
They don't have 18 years of appeal. <laughs> you leave the kids alone and look what kind of trouble they get into. But, so, the last time we saw Moshe, Moses, he was up on the mountain talking to God, and the people were getting more and more upset and dissatisfied and fearful. And we talked about the fact that the problem was that Moses had become the person that they were putting their confidence in rather than the Lord. And so, therefore, and we understand how this happens. He's in front of them. He's visible. He's the one. It's very, this is an easy problem, so I'm not even necessarily being too critical about it. But the problem is they did this. They saw Moshe. And so when Moses disappears, what ends up happening? When Moses disappears... They get anxious, they get fearful, and over the and what happens when you start talking that way? It gets bigger, right? When you look at the problems and you start complaining, what happens? The problems get bigger. You complain more. You become more fearful, and that's what they were doing. And so Aaron gets upset. He's seeing the chaos that's going on, and it is a kind of of a concern, isn't it? But what's his response? To give in to what the people want. And we all know the people are all wise, right? Mobs always make good decisions. They always want what's best. And so they wanted a God they could see because Moses wasn't there. They could see him. So now they need a God they can see, right? That's what we have. We turn on the power and bow down before the great light. Especially when it's football. Oh, never mind. So we need a God we can see. For me, it's Doctor Who night, not football. But anyway. And so they demonstrated a complete lack of faith in God because it was dependent on Moses' visibility to be faithful. And so the way the sin plays out is, since they were familiar with idols, since they wanted a God they can see, they went to Aaron, they said, make us a God. And it does seem, and it's a little hard to tell from the Hebrew, because it talks about making us gods, yet Aaron seems to be saying this is a representation of God. So it's a little unclear what's going on, whether the nation thought that this calf was a physical representation of God, or just another idol, because their background, it's not surprising they made idols. Aaron, what maybe he may be trying to do, and this is just sort of an opinion, is he may be trying to keep them from sinning as badly as they might by trying to make them think that, well, but this is just as a physical repetition of God. So he's trying to sort of tone down the sin a, a bit, take it down a notch or two. I don't know. It, whatever he was trying to do didn't work, did it? Because it was sin, no matter what you call it. To me, the really sad foolishness of all this is that Aaron complies with this. He makes the golden calf. He has them bring the gold, as we talked about last week. He even offers up, or prepares them to offer up sacrifices as they would in the tabernacle to this idol. And this is the, what have you done for me in the last five minutes syndrome, which we struggle with as Christians, too. Because they had seen God working. They'd seen him destroy Pharaoh's army. They'd seen him drop food out of the sky. They'd seen his, the Shekinah glory go before them, a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. They've seen God doing all of these things. But Moses has been up in the mountain for five, six weeks. And so what happens? What have you done for me in the last five minutes? When we get in really stressful, difficult times, it seems like at times we forget all the things that God's done for us and panic. But how are we going to, you know, if we can't figure a solution, God, obviously God can't, right? What have you done for me in the last five minutes, God? And so this is why I don't want to be, what they were doing is sin, but I want us to understand that they were people and that we can't say, well, if I was there, I would have done it differently because the answer is no, we wouldn't. Because we have the indwelling Holy Spirit and we still do it the same way. Sometimes. This is the struggle of fallen human nature of God's people who see God working. This is why if we suddenly had an outbreak of miracles, it wouldn't cause any more people to get saved or strengthen the faith of anybody. It doesn't work that way, does it? By the way, just as a side thought, 
This is also the fallout from Moses' disobedience to God. Because remember back when God called Moses, and Moses says, who had been big in Egypt, and suddenly developed a stutter and said, oh, by the way, God, I can't really talk to these people anyway, so God finally gave up and said, okay, you get Aaron. And so now Aaron becomes the spokesman of the people, right? Because Moses created a situation that moved him into that role. Never thought of that. That's interesting. And that's what happens. That sin rolls downhill. Decisions that we make today may create problems years down the line. There's consequences to choices. And so, just a thought. See, throughout the New Testament we find warnings that dangers often cause come from those within the body or within Christendom. I was reading an article in Christianity Today on the Olstification of the church. (laughs) Joel Olstein. And the problems that's created. Problems arise from within more often than they come from without. Because it's more subtle. And so Aaron, and of course then the people can feel really good, right? Because Aaron's going to be the high priest. Aaron's the high priest. He's the one that's building the idols. See, we didn't do anything wrong. It was our leader. He just did what we asked. So we all fall into this place sometimes where we doubt. Can you think of any times where you've been struggling in the middle of something and it's led to some doubts and how did you handle it? Yes. Okay, good. At least the yes was on. Do you care to expand or not? You don't have to if you don't. Well, my eldest daughter was in an accident and she was in a coma. We didn't know whether she was going to make it or not. And this other kid came in. He had... uh, put a gun in his mouth and pulled the trigger. He was in a coma for one day and was out of the hospital within three. Um, I had a lot of doubt there. Yeah, that would. You're in good company. That's David. Why does the unbelievers benefit and get blessed and prosper and look what happens to us? Yeah, I would be probably wondering about that, yeah. It was kind of a conflict when my mother was laying dying and... Uh, you know, would it be cruel for us to pray the Lord to take her home or not? And so we prayed the Lord to take her home, and then she went, you know, and it's just, but it was just kind of this conflict, what, did I do the right thing or did I not do the right thing? Yeah, I've had, as we were all becoming more chronologically challenged and they're dealing with this, I've had a number of people come to me with that one. And am I being selfish because I'm praying that my parent will die? And that, so that's an area of real struggle for people. Yeah. So how did you handle it? We you prayed, but I mean, we stood around and prayed, and then um, we saw her slip away, and then uh, then I got and read the twenty-third Psalm, and then that was the end of it. Okay. So you prayed. How did did your daughter recover? Pretty much. Okay. okay. Anybody else? I met a guy when I was really young, and young we questioned God anyway, because I'm 15, yeah. in a car accident, and I walked in the door and my mother wasn't there, so I questioned God for a long time, mm-hmm. I, I believed, but I couldn't understand, and it wasn't until years later that I understand, you know, I still don't understand why, but it's God's will, and, you know, not saying he took her, I don't look at it that way, it was, there was a purpose, and it, um, and doubts in the middle of that yeah. is reasonable. All these doubts are reasonable. A reasonable person would feel that way. Why did this happen? And you're right. We don't get answers, do we? The answer to why is God is God's character, which comforts us so that we don't have to have the why. Because the why is just saying, turn back the clock so it didn't happen. We don't want an answer. We want it not to have happened. Yes? Um, my brother uh, was born with disabilities. And uh, I remember growing up that we would sit at the table and have problems with speech and that sort of thing. And I'd sit there and I'd run along with him because I was the younger sister. And kids would 
pick on him or whatever, mm-hmm. and I would kind of protect him. He would protect me physically, and I'd protect him emotionally. But as a result, it uh, shaped my character. And I, I believe that the Lord allows these types of things within this realm in order to uh, develop our character. And so I've taken that with me through life, and and my brother ended up actually in a convalescent home. It, um, he's since passed, but he spent you know, maybe 25 years in a convalescent home. And I would go there, and I would visit him, and, and that sort of thing, um, which was potentially a witness to the other people that were there. And then just looking at that whole environment of some of those people, very caring and nurturing, it's it's a, it's a potential place where we grow in our character. And that is the why, not the why, the specific issue, but the why of that God does work these things in our lives. And while I tell people when somebody's in grief, don't use the first, all things work together for good to him that loves the Lord. Don't use that. Because when somebody's in the middle of the pain, that is not helpful. That is more hurtful than anything else. But as we look back, we see the truth of that because it's true and it is helpful when you're looking back to understand. But the real issue is what what a number of people said, what you grow and what you learn and how the Lord blesses you or others through it. Using the fallenness of the world and the things that maybe are not the way they should be, but using them and taking those things out of fallenness and bringing something out of it to His glory, even in the midst of the ugliness and the fallenness. And that's what we're supposed to do. But Israel... As a nation, because now you also see the problem with mob psychology. As a nation, once you get everybody starting to panic, then pretty soon you're functioning not at an individual level, you're functioning at a group level, and very often then you want the wrong things. The one that stands out here as the problem is Aaron. Now, I don't know what would have made a size bit of difference if he says, what are you people thinking? It might have, it might have turned things around. But that's not the issue. The issue is he would have been able to stand before Moses and said, I did what I could do. That's the issue. We are responsible for what we do. It doesn't matter whether it results in something good or not. We're accountable for our own choices. Yes? I wonder if he was in fear of his life. Oh, I think you got 2,000 people out there freaking, and he's left in charge. I'm, it could have been. I'm, he was certainly fearful of the consequences, and so he took the easy way out until his brother showed up, and he had to stand in front of him. Then he start, and this will show you his character, though. He keeps trying to find the easy way out. Because what had happened? So now while they're down on the mountain, Moses was going through his own test, right? God was saying, hey, here's what's going on. Why don't we just start over and, and Moses' initial reaction probably was, that sounds like a good idea to me. But then he became concerned about God's honor, God's reputation, which was what he was supposed to be. Because if you're going to lead God's people, your primary concern needs to be for God. And Moses needs to be reminded of that. Because he was kvetching and complaining and upset about what's going on, which he had a right to be. Absolutely. But his decisions needed to be made, and our decisions need to be made, not on our emotions, but on what's right. And and God was reminding Moses of that truth. And Moses passed his test because he quit worrying about himself and started being concerned about God's reputation and God's honor. And so he is strengthened. This gets back to what a lot of you were saying. He's strengthened in the crisis to become more the person God wants him to be. Now we'll see that doesn't always didn't always isn't always the case. Because we all struggle and sometimes we fail and sometimes we don't. He didn't fail here. Are there times when we're more concerned about our comfort than God's glory and God's honor? How does that play out? There have been times I want out of pain more than I want anything else. Which is a reasonable way to feel, by the way. 
The issue is in how we feel. So what we do with it. You ever been there? Questions are great. Yeah. Agree. Refocus. Yeah. Yeah. Focus back on God. The Psalm David does that all the time. Refocuses from the thing that's frustrating him, which, by the way, are legitimate questions. But refocuses on those and focuses back on God. And what happens? His attitude changes. Nothing else changes. Circumstances don't change. Nothing changes except the only thing that matters: his attitude. God sometimes also changes the circumstances, but that's not a requirement, is it? Because sometimes he doesn't. A guy uh, unhappy in the job he's in doesn't feel fully utilized. I said, that's okay. You know, reasonable thing to do. Put out feelers, look for operation, uh, look for up their opportunities, say, God, I'd like to be out of here, but most of all, if this is where I'm supposed to be, give me peace about it. He's still there for now. But the only days he has to worry about is the day he has to get through today. He doesn't have to worry about whether he's going to be there a week from now. And personally, I can see reasons why God is leading him there, because he's got other things he needs to be dealing with. It's perspective, isn't it? What happened? They took their perspective and moved from God to Moses, which is easy. It happens in churches all the time, or it moves from God to the pastor. Moved to Moses, then Moses disappears. What happens? They're disconnected. And instead of turning to Aaron and Aaron turning to God and refocusing them back where it needs to be focused, they take the easy way out. So, <laughs> Moses comes down the mountain. He comes down with the tablets of the law in his hands. God wrote up by his own hand. I don't know whether Christ came down there. We don't know exactly how that worked, but it was God. We're told very clearly, Moses says, God's the one who wrote them. He didn't dictate them to Moses, and Moses wrote them. Okay. And by the way, we notice that notice Joshua turns up in that passage. All of a sudden, he's coming down the mountain, there's Joshua. So we don't know exactly whether Joshua had been up there in the mountain, had gone up with him, and was just waiting for him. But Joshua, he runs into Joshua, and this is the first introduction to Joshua. And Joshua's here in the ruckus, and he, to him it sounds like there's a war going on down there. The noise coming up is so chaotic. Of course, Moses already knows what's going down there, so he uses it a little more clearly. It's a sound of singing and a sign of the sin he's going to find. And it's interesting that Joshua's been alongside and that maybe he was up there waiting for Moses 40 days. This may have been Joshua's preparation. It's clear Joshua was uninvolved in the sin. He didn't know what's going on down there. And Joshua is the one that Moses anoints that God appoints to lead the people into the land when Moses is not able to go into the land. So he suddenly appears from off stage into the scene and into the scene in a way that shows he wasn't involved. And I think that's why he was there. I think that's why God showed him there. I think to show us that Joshua was God's man and had not been involved with the sin in the nation. So the first thing Moses did, which is interesting, is he's standing on the top, uh, on a cliff overlooking the camp, and he breaks the tablets of the law, and, that, and he makes it clear him, that he broke them because he was angry. Now, this is one of those rare examples we find of righteous anger, apparently. You know, we don't have any trouble getting angry. For all sorts of reasons. But righteous anger is rarely the source of our anger, is it? When we're angry for God. When Christ was angry in the temple and chasing out the money changers, he was angry. He was physically aggressive in his anger. But what was he angry about? An insult to the honor of the Father. When he gets angry at the religious leaders, it's anger at people that present themselves as speaking for God while dishonoring God. That's righteous anger. It's reasonable. Still need to depend on the Spirit in terms of how you act it out. But in this case, Moses acted it out by breaking the, the tablets, which symbolized what? The, breaking, the people's breaking of the law, even though they hadn't received it. It hadn't come into camp, but this is what it's done. So he, and it's a sign of their breaking of their relationship, fellowship with God. All these things are broken because of their sin. The first commandments, which they've heard, 
you know, you shall have no other gods. You shall not make any graven image. And the, the very first two that relate to their relationship, their fellowship with God, those are the ones they broke. And so peace has been broken between them and God. Can you think of any examples in your own life where uh, would have been a good idea if somebody had broken the tablets before they got into the house? Where you broke it? Confess what you want to do. Where have broken the, the tablets of the law? What are our commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And? Your neighbor is yourself. Yeah. That is the law, isn't it? When was the last time you broke that one? See, it's the same thing. And what does it do? It breaks our peace with God, not our relational peace, but our fellowship peace. It breaks our communion. It grieves the spirit. So it breaks our accessibility to God's power until we repent and are restored. So it's the same thing. Now, it's another thing that seems to be maybe be the case here too is due to Moses' auspices, the nation is not in danger of total destruction. Two reasons. One, because he did end up defending them because of God's honor up there in the mountain. But also, uh, so but judgment and restoration is needed, and that's what we see in the coming verses. Fellowship is broken. And that has to be restored. And the first thing that had to be done was Moses destroys the calf. Some feel, and this may be the case, that if he had brought the commandments in unbroken, that they would have been subject to a harsher judgment because God's word would have actually come into the camp. And he broke the tablets to save them from even harsher judgment. I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting thought. It may be a possibility because God's working in deep, that level of detail. But I don't know. Yes? Well, I noticed on that, God didn't uh, reprimand or condemn Moses for breaking the tablets. He didn't punish him at all for it. That's so right. Or was, say anything about it. He just yeah. gave him a backup set. Yeah. Which is, again, saying he was neutral to approving of Moses' behavior. So what did Moses do? And interesting, Moses recounts all of these events in Deuteronomy chapter 9, if you want to read that whole section. It's, he says, Then I took the sinful thing, the calf that you had made, and he's talking to the nation as a whole, and burned it with fire and crushed it, grinding it very small until it was down to fine dust. And as I threw the dust of it into a brook that ran down from the mountain, so he takes the time to reduce this thing to gold powder. And he mixes it with the water, throws it in the creek, and then he makes the pe people drink of it. It's a way of showing that they took this sin into themselves. He says, here's the great and powerful God you made. You end up drinking them in gold water. So their sin made idolatry part of their life, and this is a way of picturing it. Isn't it? Because they're taking it into themselves. And it's one which, to their sad condition, never left them. See, this is the thing we need to understand when we're dealing with people and God's encouraging us to build into people's lives. Their behaviors are maybe sinful, and they are sin, okay? But they're not the problem. They're symptoms of a problem. The problem is the heart condition. This is why if somebody corrects a behavior, it doesn't mean that their heart has been touched at all necessarily. When somebody quits drinking and getting behind the wheel, that's great. <laughs> it benefits them and us, right? But we have what we call dry drunks, and those are people who have simply stopped drinking without changing any of the heart attitudes or the interior thinking that caused them to drink. They're not just not drinking anymore. Like I say, okay, fine, that's, that's a good thing, but that's not fixing their real problem, which is their heart problem. Jesus talks about this all the time. 
that the issue isn't your behavior, the issue isn't his disciples eating some grains of wheat on the Sabbath. The issues are a hard attitude. And if you clean up the behaviors, what do you end up with a whitewashed tomb? This is why, by the way, for us as Christians, it's not our primary responsibility to go out and clean up people's behaviors. Because what do we do then? We help them feel better about themselves and even less likely to see their need for the Lord. So he makes it clear to them, their sin is now in, in their interior, isn't it? Because they drank it, literally. And by the way, it's interesting to note, shows you uh, what their thinking is. Nowhere do you read of any effort on the people's part to stop Moses or to defend themselves. He comes into town, they just freak, and whatever Moses says, okay. We screwed up Moses. We read nothing about the people's reaction. So apparently they did still perceive him as God's representative. And while they were in open rebellion, they were still aware of God's presence. And I think as Christians, when we are choosing, remember the rule, in any given situation, in dependency on the Holy Spirit, you can choose not to sin. But that means the corollary is true, and that is if we try decide we want to sin, we're going to sin because we're not going to ask for help. But even when we're doing that, we know we're in rebellion and what we're doing is wrong because we are choosing to make sure we're not asking the Lord's help because we want to do what we want to do. I don't know about you, but I've been there. Okay. And so they know they're, they're messed up. Now, I do think at times we get into trouble because we're caught up in, in whatever we're caught up in and we forget God's presence and we don't have anybody around to remind us. And Aaron didn't remind them. Have you been in that situation? I have found when I'm discouraged about circumstances, it's easy to hold up at home. Oh, yeah. I don't have anybody around. I can just stew, be upset, um, without anybody seeing that part of me. And yet what I need the most at that time is to get out of whatever went around inside my mind and not continue to just stay where I am. And so it is best that I continue to go to church, continue to fellowship continue to talk to somebody about how mm-hmm. you know all the stuff that's going on so they can correct me and say, No Don, here's here it's okay for you to feel the way that you feel and that's what you've talked over the years. But now deal with whatever it is that's keeping you from finding peace with God. And it's it's very beneficial. Yeah, it is interesting and we've seen those of us who in our ministry working with people, we see this all, all the time and that and that's when it moves into rebellion. Is when somebody who you have been helping all of a sudden disappears. And the reason because they're disappearing is because they don't want to hear what they know you're going to have to say because they want to do what they want to do, which they know is wrong. And they'll disappear from church, they'll disappear from counseling, they'll they'll disappear from the face of the earth. And that's when you know that they're in trouble most of the time. Sometimes they're just like caught up with them. But, and it's because that voice that they need to hear, they are choosing to make sure they don't hear it. And maybe not even at a conscious level, but they're choosing to make sure they're not going to hear any godly input because they want to either stew, feel like they have the right to feel the way they do, feel like they, you know, I'm entitled to a good snip. Or because they want to move into something even worse. Because once you start that downhill slide, you'll end up doing things. You say, well, I will never do that. You don't. You don't jump off a cliff. You slide down the hill. It's incremental. Okay. That was my daughter. <laughs> and on the other hand, you can talk about your problems too much to... Christian people, and after a while, begin to feel like a nuisance. Well, and there's two things with that. Yes, you can end up talking about them too much because what we're doing is we're just hearing what we want to hear, but we don't want to do anything about doing anything with it. So that's a problem. You know, we're just, oh, I'm listening, I'm listening, I'm listening. It never changed, so that's a problem. 
But and but that I'm feeling like I'm a nuisance can be simply Satan's way of trying to keep us from sharing. It may not be valid. It's how we feel because we don't wouldn't want somebody coming to us complaining as much as they're complaining. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that's necessarily true. It, the real issue is, are we just hearing a lot of truth, but we're unwilling to do anything with it? That's the problem, not whether we're sharing or not. It's what are we doing with what we're hearing. And I've, and I've had clients like that. I say, well, apparently, you're not in a place right now where I'm able to help you because I'm telling them the same thing week after week, and they're not, and they're not interested in doing anything with it. Then, hey, I, my job isn't to make somebody do what they're supposed to do. That's between them and the Lord. And at some point, they can't move into that where they just are feeling good because they're coming because then they don't have to do anything. We all know that. People go to church to feel good about themselves. They come out, oh, I'm feeling wonderful. It doesn't affect their life at all. But they went. It's the same thing. But these guys knew they were in trouble. I mean, there was no question in their mind that they were in deep trouble. But if they were in trouble... I don't understand. It's like we never hear about Aaron getting in any trouble. But we should. it would be nice if we did because his excuses are ridiculous. In fact, this whole section, if it wasn't so serious, would make a good comedy routine. Yeah. So Moses finally gets around. And Moses starts, which is appropriate, giving the benefit of the doubt. He figures that somebody put a gun to Aaron's head and made Aaron do this. He says, okay, I understand that the people forced you to do this. Because in his mind, Aaron's going to be the high priest, right? It's un- And his brother. It's unthinkable that Aaron would have come up with this and done this on his own. This is my brother. He wouldn't do anything like that. He's God's high priest. He wouldn't do anything like that. So he starts from the assumption that it's the people's fault. And Aaron is perfectly willing to go along with that, right? And he says, well, you know how these people are. They're full of evil. It's their fault. I don't know. It's somebody's fault. The duck never got here. <laughs> As I say, we learned that right in the fall, right? Right from the very beginning. Adam turns around and says to God, it's your fault for giving me the dumb broad. She turns around and says, it's the serpent's fault. I always, like I always say, I always felt bad for him because he turned around there was nobody left to blame. So, I mean, we learned blame shifting right from the right from the get-go. It's our first reaction. Family Circus, one of my favorite little family cartoons. They're always saying, it's not, I didn't do it. You know, somebody else must have. We're great at blame shifting. And so, Moses seems to say that the only pressure here was peer pressure. That Aaron gave into, in effect, peer pressure. Uh, and Mo- then Aaron gets really ridiculous. He says, well, all I did was... I, 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 I called for the gold, and I didn't have much choice. I mean, the people felt deserted. Oh, yeah, it's your fault, Moses, because you left him down there all that long. <laughs> Seems familiar. Yeah. Eve says it's the serpent's fault. Adam <laughs> says it's Eve's fault. And Flip Wilson said the devil may be by distress. <laughs> But then it goes from just pathetic to beyond pathetic and to just totally ridiculous. And all I did was throw the gold in the fire and this calf came jumping out. Oh, man. If Moses believed that, Aaron could sell him a bridge in the desert. But it shows you what happens when we feel backed into a corner. The, the stupidity of the excuses that we can make. I mean, just so dumb that we can't. I love on Judge Judy when she's looking at the at the defendant and says, that story's so bad you can't even keep a smile off your face. You don't even believe it yourself. Some people have got to cut people slack. Some commentators find it so hard to believe you'd even say something that dumb that they're just, they take the assumption, oh, it's just glossing over how the work he made it. No, it says he said that it jumped out of the fire. It didn't say saying, okay, I made it. 
and then I'm just skipping the details. No, it was my fault. It was a supernatural event. The idol made itself. Okay. So the fact is, Moses makes it very clear that he is not buying into any of this thing. And here's your answer. You don't find it in Exodus. you got to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 9. This is what Moses tells us later. And the Lord was so angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him. And I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. So when Moses prays for the nation, he prays specifically for Aaron that God would not judge him. So he intercedes for the people, but he intercedes specifically for Aaron. He wasn't one to be driven by the people but he was still functioning as their intercessor by praying for their sin. Remember, he, the reason he's doing this is because God had reminded him and he remembered that this isn't about the people's sin. It's about God's honor. And so while they have to be judged and while they have to be disciplined, they cannot be destroyed. And then he prays for Aaron because Aaron really messed up, but God had appointed him a side priest and it's not good for God's reputation, and it's not good for the nation, that the person that was made high priest is immediately struck dead for his sins. Yes? Is this maybe the reason why Aaron's sons were so arrogant? It's like, oh, Dad got away with it, he's the high priest. He thought God's not going to bother us. And it may be, because this is the problem. Testimony. Our testimony to our kids. When you let your kids get away with things, what's the message? When a parent says, so, if you do that, I'll do again. And when they finally do it the 13th time and they finally wail on them because they didn't deal it the first time and now they're doing it because they're frustrated, what does the kid learn? I can get away with it 12 times. So was that a factor? We don't know, but it's reasonable to believe that it would have been. In some churches, dad's the pastor. Mom's the pastorette. I'm going to become the pastor when Dad retires. I can do whatever I want. This kind of stuff flows downhill. And so it had to have an impact of some kind. It had to have an impact on the nation. They get punished, and it looks like Aaron, who really is the one that should have stood up and said, hey, gets away with it. Nothing good comes out of sin. Okay, Growth may come from the sinner, but it has long-term ramifications. Scripture makes it clear, we reap what we sow, not in eternity, but in this life. I mean, look at, jo look at Jacob and his kids. You want to talk about dysfunctional families. Or David and his kids, yes. We can even go back to Abraham with uh, Hagar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he listened to his wife. Still... Look how well that worked out. We're still paying the price. Yeah. Yeah. In the Middle East, yeah. So, yes, sin has ramifications much more than we are aware of. We need to take sin seriously. This is why Scripture tells us, be holy as God is holy. Right? Because the cost of sin. And the little ones allow us to do bigger ones if they're undealt with. See, that's good. Even, there's no such thing as a little sin because it breaks down the barriers. And so the nation does have to be judged. The behavior of the nation became reminiscent of the, of the pagan practices in Egypt. By the way, the sense of the partying and the singing, what went on in Egypt and in other cultures with idol worship? Pardon? Love. Yeah, sexual sin. So we don't know what was going on except that based on what was considered the norm, I suspect it got very ugly. You break the first two commandments, it becomes very easy to break all the rest of them, doesn't it? 
If you don't put God in his place, then it becomes very easy to just throw the rest of it out. The only thing that keeps us loving our neighbors and making disciples is our love of God. So, it's not unlikely that you didn't get a lot of practices. In fact, the Hebrew, it's not translated, but in the Hebrew, if you look at it, it seems to say that the people were naked and that Aaron encouraged them. But whether we're talking literal nakedness or not, they were standing naked in their sin before God, weren't they? Gross sin. Aaron is held responsible. And the people have become a laughingstock of the nations around them. See, there's no such thing as a victimless crime. Okay. Our sin impacts others, even if people aren't aware of it. So Moses couldn't continue to allow the people to continue with their moral lack of control. So he calls the nation, if there's any loyal to me, then come forward. Now this raises all sorts of interesting questions which scripture doesn't particularly answer. Who comes forth out of the nation? The entire tribe of Levi. Would they have been involved in the activities? It is unreasonable to think they weren't. So what does that mean? It means that maybe God's worked on their conscience more than the others. Maybe they repented more clearly. Maybe because Aaron, maybe they were embarrassed by Aaron's behavior and so they stood up when God, but for whatever reason that Moses does not go into, it's the tribe of Levi that rises up to the occasion and Moses conveys God's instructions to them. And that is, while the nation was protected from total destruction, it doesn't mean it was protected from the results of the sins. The Levites were to go through the camp with their swords and slain those they found, including families who were guilty of sin. And maybe God directed them to the ones that had instigated the crowd. I don't know. But whatever happened is, by the time it's said and done... 3,000 men are put to the sword. Now, that's a lot of people, but statistically, considering the size of the nation, they, I hate to phrase it this way, but in a sense, they got off lucky. Because you've got over 2 million men, and 3,000 were slain. So maybe those were the ones that instigated and started this whole thing in the first place. I don't know. Moses doesn't tell us. Moses wouldn't know unless God told him. It wasn't important. What, what's most important about all of this is the nation sinned. Moses grew as a leader. They suffered consequence. And the tribe of Levi rose up as a people dedicated to the service of the Lord. Those are the important events. The specific details, we don't know. Because the important message that Paul gives us that's tied to this concept is in Galatians 6-7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows that, he will also reap. That's a warning to believers. Don't think because you're saved, because you're going to be home to be with the Lord. It may, and this is the answer, by the way, to the non-believer. So, so does that mean once you're a Christian you can behave any way you want? Paul says, uh-uh. Don't count on that. God is more concerned about disciplining us because we're his children. He lets the believers get away with less than he lets non-believers get away with. Because non-believers, and this we need to remember too, is what do you expect? They're behaving like non-believers. Oh, what a news bulletin. Our concern is when Christians are behaving like non-believers. Yes? Can't point with that. Look at Ananias and Sapphira. A good example. Oh, yeah. Even though they were Christians, they were still judged. And a blessing that God doesn't treat us like that anymore. Yeah. Or we wouldn't be worried about over jamming the second service. We'd be looking, for, we'd be wondering how many of us would still be standing. Um, yeah. Exactly. The real question isn't why were 3,000 killed? Here's the question. It's the legitimate one. Why were any saved? Isn't that really the question when we're talking about salvation? Not 
how come that person isn't? How come I am? Really? I mean, that's the issue, huh? And the fact is that God had the justification, but because of his mercy, and more importantly, because of his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he only allowed a few to die. God keeps his promises. God is merciful. God saves those who he will for his reasons and his glory. We don't have to understand, do we? Paul says it in Romans 11, 33 and 34. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? The point is we don't get it. We don't know, do we? And we don't need to know. What we should take from this passage really is a spirit of praising God because he doesn't treat us as we deserve. We're all his children. He loves, it disciplines those who he loves. We read that in Hebrews 12, 5 and 6. And we don't like it. This is not my favorite verses. No, I don't have these on the refrigerator. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Do not become weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. See, you were talking about Aaron getting away with it and the impact that might have had. But the fact is, God can't allow the nation to escape unscathed. Can you imagine the message that would send? And so, if men don't believe God holds them accountable, then they simply go on with their sin, right? Isn't that what kids do? This is why kids need to be disciplined. This is why they're out of control. They're looking for the line. They're looking for where security is. If the parents say, oh, dear, you know, we didn't do it. And let them get away with it, what ends up happening? It'll just get worse. So without discipline comes riot and anarchy. Moses notes the Levites are, have a part in God's judgment. That's their obedience. By doing this, which would have been, I mean, they're out slaughtering neighbors, right? That's something that wouldn't have been on their list when they got up that morning. They're showing their obedience to God. That may be their punishment. They may be being punished more, in some sense, more greatly than the nation because they're required to carry out God's judgment having done the same sin themselves. Kind of harsh, huh? But Moses promised they would receive blessing. And what was the blessing? They became the priestly tribe. You want to talk about a mixed blessing. But the fact is, there had to be judgment. So next we come up to the second plea of Moses. Next day makes it clear just how serious the sin was. Even before the judgment falls, Moses feels he needs to go back to God and plead for the people. And I suspect he's, he wants to reinstill fear God. Not me, God. After all, Proverbs 1 7, we all know, have this one memorized. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. If this is what he's done this time, what do you think is going to happen next time if you do this again? So Moses goes before God again, I suspect with fear and trembling. He makes it clear he understands the gravity of their sin, even if they don't. That as any good leader, which is interesting, which I'll tell you something about people today, he takes personal responsibility. He doesn't say, well, God, it's not my fault. Aaron. You know, you left Aaron in charge because you brought me up. He doesn't know. But for him, the buck stopped here. And so he wanted to take the punishment himself if God was sparing him. And so again, he becomes a type of Christ, doesn't he? problem is he can't because he's not without sin himself so he can't take their punishment so he's the mediator and like I say in that he becomes a type of Christ Romans 6.10 for the death he died he died to sin once for all but the life he lives he lives to God so he was willing to die in the place of the people Moses but he couldn't Christ could Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he became him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know, it's kind of too bad the nation didn't hear how Moses was praying for them because he's up there talking to God. 
they might have had a bit more respect for him if they understood just what he was doing for them. And so how does God respond? Well, God says, picking up the verse 33. Well, let's go back to 30 just so you can hear Moses. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord, and perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. And so he says, no, I'll leave the people. I'm still going to go before them. People have to pay the price for their own sin. And that's still the truth today. If you don't accept Christ's payment for sin, you pay the price for your own. Nobody is going to pay but yourself. And God, but what God is saying was intended to reassure, because he's saying he only judges when it's necessary. It's not his desire. It's not his desire to punish. It's not his desire to judge. It's not even his desire to discipline, except that our behaviors and his nature bring about that need. And so he's tell, to tell Israel that he's going to send an angel before him, whether this was the angel in Christ or simply God saying, my presence will be amongst you. The fact is, in spite of everything they'd done, he was still going to go before them. And so we have to remember the same thing, that for us, God goes before us too, and we can interfere with that when we break fellowship. Not relationship. Fellowship with our sin. And sometimes we may feel as if God's presence is far away, like he's up on the mountain and we haven't seen him. But he's always there. Sometimes it just doesn't feel that way. And that's when we have to hold on to the truth that God's presence isn't about our being aware of him. It's about the fact that he promises to be with us. And sometimes if we feel cut off from him, we need to, then the answer is, Lord, we need to examine our hearts, search our hearts, O oh Lord, to see if maybe the fellowship has been broken by us. We hung up the phone. God's still sitting there waiting for us to pick it up again. We hung it up. And repentance is the way we pick it up. Or John says in 1 John 2, 1, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But, and it really is not a but, if anyone does sin, which we all do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Satan can accuse us, but the sins have been paid for. God isn't running around up there saying, I can't believe he just did that. Or, why did she do that again? God isn't doing that. Those sins have been paid for. But we do need to examine our lives to see if the phone is dead, if it just appears dead, or if we hung it up. David says, I searched my heart, O oh Lord. And so we know that finally, our hope is in the fact that God has provided a salvation. And though we do fall under his discipline, he's still there to lead us, even when we stumble along trying to do it on our own. All we need to do is reach out and he'll show us the next step again. And when we fall off the road, he'll pick us back up and put us on. All we have to do is ask. But we don't have, we're not called to live this life on our own. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that great? Because who would want to lead this life on their own? People are jumping up and saying, oh, the world's going to be better in January because look how the election's going. Yeah, right. If you believe that, I have a bridge, I'll sell you. No, the world is better today, right now, if we allow the Lord to lead us on the next step. 
in all in the only ways that matter. Our life is not dependent on our circumstances. As David says, as somebody mentioned this earlier, the twenty third Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head in oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord. Amen.